Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Oh, Dan, your melodious voice, your mellifluous, mellifluous ah. voice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so profound, mm. so bassy and profound. Yes. That is the Telefunken M82. Oh, oh, is that right? You use a Telefunken. Yeah, I didn't know. The M82. Oh. Not the M80. Don't don't get weird. Get no, weird. no. Come on. Uh, <laughs> not crazy. Uh, I mean that's Yeah. Why are you not um why are you not just using the standard SM7 that every other broadcaster in the universe uses? You know, I that I have a couple of those and I use that for many, many, many years. That was the first like real mic that I got. And sure. I, um, true for a lot of people, I think, yeah, I mean, I had saved up, you know, I was, I was getting more serious about things and I had upgraded from like a condenser mic and that was a dynamic mic. And it was great. And, you know, I tried like the Heil PR 40 for a while and it would keep coming back to the SM seven B. And then one of my listeners who is like a super cool, real, real audio geek, he went to a, gosh, this was years ago. I don't know how many years this ago this was but it was when the m82 first came out and mm-hmm. he was at it was at either nam or some other like you know audio conference type thing and he came back and he's like dan listen you probably are like not looking for unsolicited advice about your audio but and he'd already he had a history at this point of writing into me with advice anyway he's like uh-huh. but i just got back from this trade show and they have this mic there called the Telefunken M82 that like your voice would sound really, really good for through it. And I tr- trusted him pretty well at this point. And I said, you know what? I have kind of been looking to maybe make a change. So I, <laughs> I ordered it and I really, really, really liked it. And so ever since then, I've pretty much been on just just this mic. Oh, isn't that interesting? I, 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 I wish I'd known, you know, I, we, I, I think of that as a kick drum mic or as a, you know, the kind of mic that got used really at a lot of the same ways that, uh, that, um, that these, these big condenser, yeah. uh, mics get used. But that one in, in particular, like I, I think of it as a studio mic that we use to mic bass amps and absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and uh, that's, so, that's the same thing as like, people don't seem to realize like the, the industry standard, like the RE 20, Mm-hmm. That's a kick drum mic too. It's a kick drum mic. We, I, I, you know, the RE twenty was the one that I thought was was my vocal mic. I def, definitely sang into it. Uh, I liked it a lot until the until I realized that the, I kind of I'm so far up on my microphones. Like yeah, the the foam <laughs> on my SM7B has been completely up my nose. It's just like <laughs> really. You would never, never, never want to use my microphone because it's just got, I mean, every thought I ever had, every sandwich I ever ate. <laughs> no, the my um in in the at my other desk where I sit like during the day and when I do when I make like voiceover video for videos and stuff or just do zooms and stuff, that's the SM7 in there. Yeah. And I still love it. I just think this one just is a little tiny, like at the end it's of the- more sibilant. I hear I hear more sibilance in it than I than I do in an, in an SM7. Yeah, I, I know that our right. listeners are like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talking about microphones. Right there, we could absolutely launch a podcast where it was just musicians, and I'm sure there are hundreds of these. Yeah, where it's just musicians sitting and doing that thing that we all do at guitar stores or in recording studios where somebody starts reeling off some specs of pieces of gear 
And then other people get into that hypnotic state where they reel off specs of pieces of gear. That's got to be true in computer math. Oh too. yeah, of course. Yeah. You just reel off pieces of gear. I, I remember it most distinctly, most clearly, I think when I was studying, um, books in college and I noticed there was a type of college student who was in literature, you know, was in, it was in, was in the reading of sciences, mm -hmm. but their version of talking about books was not talking about plot mm -hmm. or character. It was talking about the books themselves. Like, um, they, uh, you know, I, I, I was listening in on a conversation one time and it was just these two people ba bantering back and forth. And what it was, was each book was a reference to a, to a subsequent book. Like, oh, you've read that. Well, have you read this? And have you read this and this book and that book? And, and it, and it revealed a tremendous sort of insider knowledge because these, the, the next book that they mentioned, you had to understand why that was the appropriate reference in that place. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a shibboleth where you go, oh, the, there's a connection between this book and that book. And that that's what was interesting to them about the conversation. But they never once discussed what any of the books were about, why they were interesting, why the book, why they were important. Right. It was just a kind of like, uh, it was basically talking about the technical specs of microphones, which is completely unrelated to what you would, you know, completely unrelated to like making music, recording music, right? It's, it's just a, but you can do that shibboleth thing all afternoon where you, where you're like, oh, well, I'm sorry, that wasn't the, you know, that's not the Telefunken M82, I'm afraid. That's the Telefunken M82 and a half. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, it's its own form of sports. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in those worlds, and I think I do it sometimes. I definitely do it when people start naming bands from the, from the 80s and 90s. You hear Merlin and, uh, you know, and I will sit and just like, do that thing where one band begets another band begets another band. And we don't ever really go, that was the band that finally, you know, finally mastered the, the sound of throwing a guitar down a flight of stairs. <laughs> you know, it's always just like, Oh, that band's bass player was this band's bass player. And it's a weird impulse when, you, when I think about it, uh, the, and I guess it's an appeal to expertise. I guess it's like, expertise is what's on display rather than because all these things we're talking about are like they're used in the in the manufacturing and of art and it's so hard to talk about art but it's easy to talk about pencils right i guess there are a lot of people in the in the world of art that are there primarily as like pencil people. I did like, I don't think of Sylvia Plath sitting and talking about typewriters with people, uh -huh. although probably <laughs> that's no, what I'm sure she did. <laughs> that's what you do. Right. I mean, and talk about I'm the sure ribbon said, and the keys and yeah, the, somebody was like, Oh, you're using that typewriter. Oh, you should try this typewriter. I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Oh, I'm sure Van Gogh spent it, it all afternoon has to have sitting in, talking about yellow ochre 
you know, I'm yeah. sure that the mechanics who were working on the cars are saying, oh, you're using the Snap-on, I'm using this, you know, whatever. I mean, I think everyone talks about the tools of the trade at least sometimes, right? Are you a Snap-on guy or a Craftsman guy? You know, I'll tell you a little story about this. My, my best friend in high school, uh, who later went on to murder someone, uh, yeah, yeah, hold yeah, everything. Well, I can tell you that story in a minute. But he, I was, okay. um, he was living. He had had a okay. So his dad had been married to uh, a lady, and then they got a divorce. And because he had had a falling out with his dad, he was living at his the same home he had always lived in, which uh, his ex stepmom had inherited. So he was actually living there with her, and then her oh. new husband, um, and that guy, John had been a lifelong military guy. He'd been in every armed force and uh, he had- what? Yeah, Wait a minute, what? Uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force. I don't think he was in the Marines, but I think he was in the Coast Guard also. How do you, how are you in all of the services? He would what join one do? and then I guess he would get out and then he would join the next one. Okay. I know, I know. And uh, he was a he was a crazy guy with lots of stories. And he had done, he, as he was fond of saying, he had done every single drug that had ever existed and okay. um, was just a real, you know, interesting, interesting dude. And mm -hmm. so he, um, he was talking to me one time and he would, had mentioned Snap. Now he was, he was a mechanic and for a while he just sort of had a, a van that he drove a white, a white van, <laughs> like from uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs, that he would drive around, mm -hmm. and I guess he would be hired to fix stuff. And then he got a job repairing uh, generators and then elevators. I mean, he did all kinds of weird stuff. And so one time he was talking to me about Snap-on, and I had never heard of Snap-on before. And so Snap-on to me, it sounds like like the just the term Snap-on sounds junky to me it sounds like something that's not like to be taken seriously snap -on. oh because you're you're thinking of snap tight models as yeah. opposed to models that that you glue and yeah. so i'm like oh i'm like well like why wouldn't you use craftsman and he's like well snap on's better than craftsman and i said well yeah but craftsman has like a lifetime warranty if it breaks they give you a new one and he just looked at me he said snap on tools don't break uh, so he can, but I'm like, okay, well, great. Where do I get one? And he's like, well, you got to wait. Like, oh, you can't, you can't get them. Right, you can't get them. <laughs> yeah. You got to wait for the snap on truck to come by. I'm like, what well, just comes by my house? He's like, no, it goes to like, you know, places where the mechanics are. I'm like, well, so I can't ever get it basically is what you're saying. So craftsman is the short answer to your question. What do you want to know about John? John. Uh, oh, my, uh, my friend who killed the guy. Um, yes. Okay. So he had, um, my friend had, uh, he had joined the Navy after high school. Um, and he got, he was still living at his step, his ex stepmother's house all the way through high school. Yeah. And, and then, and his, his dad went where? Uh, uh, moved out. I don't know where he went. He moved out. That's nice of his ex stepmother to keep caring for him. Yeah, I mean they had she had been his stepmother for many 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 years, so I think they oh, okay. had a you know a close good relationship. Right. And so he so, go ahead. He joins the navy. He joins Sorry. the navy, and <clears throat> he uh, he was studying in the navy to be a an E three was the rank that he was going to come out of uh, training after post boot camp training out of, and he was going to be 
in working in the in like nuclear subs. He was a nuclear a nuke guy is what he was oh, studying. It's a big deal. Yeah. And so he uh he went through with most of this, but I guess at some point while he was in I guess post boot camp but in the training part to be the the advanced nuclear training. Um he I guess realized this wasn't for him and he wanted to get out. But he didn't want to get a dishonorable discharge. He didn't want to just quit. So somehow he came up with the idea that it would be better to be seen as crazy and get the discharge, the kind of discharge where it's not quite honorable, which is a regular discharge, of course, but it wasn't dishonorable in the sense that like it wouldn't go on his record forever and mark him as some kind of like person that couldn't be hired and it was a, like a problem. So he did this, this research and found that there's a certain way where they will discharge you. And there's a term that I can't remember. I'm sure our listeners are like, it's, it's called, it's called the other than honorable. Yeah. Discharge. Something like that. And, uh, and so what he did is I guess he's, he started telling them that he was depressed and he was feeling weird and, and things weren't cool. And he got a, eventually got an interview with the, like the psychologist, psychiatrist dude in there. And he came up with the phrase that single-handedly um, led to them letting him out immediately. And what he said was, and I'll never forget this. He's, and, and I just want to say it for the record so that people don't email me. I don't condone this kind of thing. I don't think it's no. right to belittle people uh, by pretending to be suicidal because there's a lot of people who are legitimately suicidal. So I'm not, I'm not in, I just want to say I'm not in support of this. Um, no, you're just telling the story. I'm just relaying the story, John. And he, okay. he said to the guy that suicide was like an itch that is getting harder and harder not to scratch. Whoa. And the next day he was out. And so he briefly came to stay with me while I was in college up in Orlando. And he's like looking for jobs and stuff in Orlando for the next few days. I'm like, so like, dude, you can't live here. I have a roommate. He's, <laughs> I think it was like during spring break or something like that. And my roommate was at home or somewhere else during the time. And I was still there at school in the apartment. I'm like, you can't live, like, it would be cool, but like, you can't live here because, you know, there's, I'm in college and I have like a roommate already and everything else. And he's like, yeah, I'll probably go back down to South Florida. So he went back down to South Florida and I, we didn't really keep in touch very much. And I hadn't heard from him. I'm going to say for maybe a year or so. And I remember, I think it was probably my mom who called me and she's like, I need to tell you something that happened with your friend. And I said, well, what, what happened? And she said, well, he murdered somebody. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And absolutely. She was not kidding me. I read the newspaper. And of course this is pre internet. So like she sent me a cutout in the mail of the newspapers so that I could read it. And, uh, and you know, so it, basically my understanding of the story is, Yes. That he had, um, he had been working, he had gone back to work at the gas station. And so he was working at the gas station, the, you know, the night shift there and, uh, and had dyed his hair black 
But when that when he didn't like the results of dyeing his hair black, he shaved his head, which nowadays is like NBD. I've buzzed my hair. A lot of people have done it. But back in this time, which I'm going to say would be like the mid 90s, like that was a statement if you mm-hmm. buzzed your hair back then. That was like a thing. Mm-hmm. And He's getting all Travis Bickle about the, it. Very Travis Bickle, and which was one of his favorite movies, by the way. And, That's concerning. Uh, yeah. And he, I, I guess, fell into a, a drug thing and I think was doing heroin. And Uh-oh. apparently, this is all that I know about this story, is that it, it, it had to do with a girl. And he basically had laid in wait for, I'm thinking, the other, the other man. His um, rival. His rival, just like Rocky Raccoon, mm-hmm. to show up at the apartment and he opened the door and fired two shotgun blasts into the guy shotgun. Blasts. Yes. And then, um, and then he basically just stood outside saying I shot him and they came and arrested him and he went to prison and, um, spent, I think seven years in prison and then got out. And I don't really know what became of him after that. Um, but I haven't really wanted to reach out and find out and maybe I'm a bad person for not wanting to be involved, but I just don't like, I don't feel like I need to get involved in that. But I, I, of course I, I hope he's doing okay, but that's my story. Seven years is all all. that he served for cold blooded murder. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's how long a, of a term you get, if you get good behavior, then I think you're out after just seven years, which doesn't seem right to me, but that's what no. happened. It doesn't seem right. Does it? Considering, no. considering the people who are languishing in prison for, yeah, for like, for, they got arrested at, you know, for carrying a joint in their back pocket or something. And they're there for like 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, I guess if we agree as a culture that seven years in prison is so awful that it is that it basically pays for one life violently extinguished. Why would we ever sentence someone to 10 years in prison? What could they possibly do that would, that would make us sentence them to 10 years in prison, let alone 20. Yeah. I, but I guess it's all these, you know, it's these technicalities of like a murder committed in the course of committing another felony, like a bank robbery or, right. I mean, you know, there's all these things that kind of, that make it um, impossible for judges not to sentence them. But there's all these book throwing judges that are giving people life in prison for stuff. I, seven but years. hold on, let me look this up. I got stuff in my refrigerator that's been there for <laughs> years. <laughs> Uh, 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 okay. How long is a life sentence in the United States? Here's what I'm Googling. Uh, It says, um, this is on an, okay. That's interesting website. Uh, the name of the website. Welcome to our prison reform podcast. It's called sportsmansbailbonds.com. That is the website where I'm reading this from. So (laughs) it says a life sentence is any type of imprisonment where a defendant is required to remain in prison for all of their natural life or until parole. So how long is a life sentence? In most of the United States, a life sentence means a person is in prison for 15 years with the chance of parole. It can be very confusing to hear a man sentenced to life, but then 15 years later, they are free. The reason this happens sometimes is the defendant, in some cases, is allowed to live the rest of their sentence on parole. Okay, well... Multiple life sentences, uh, 
Yeah. So apparently a life sentence doesn't mean you're in there for life. Then there's another article that says it's 25 years, but it's clearly well, we not that it the rest of their life. That, yeah. We knew it didn't mean life because of this whole parole thing. I mean, yeah. Manson keeps getting denied parole. Right. He keeps trying to get paroled, which would be, that would be, that would be hilarious. The day that Charles Manson just kind of came out of prison and was like, got a job somewhere. Right. Probably not no. going to happen in his case, but, um, yeah, I've, you know, I've put a lot of thought into jail and prison because I always imagined, I guess, that I would end up there for some period and wanted to be, you know, when I watched prison movies, you know, cause it's funny that, that prison is enough of a thing. It excites our imagination enough that there are multiple prison movies, including some that are great and prison TV shows. Like we're all very fascinated about prison mm -hmm. and that's gotta be because it's something, um, it's something very close to the heart for people because if it were just a scary thing, we wouldn't want to watch prison movies. Right. But, but we want to, you know, we want to be in this situation where we're confined in a cell and the, and the bad guys, you know, we can't get away from our enemies and we're surrounded by guards and we can never, we can't ever smell the grass. Like for some reason, this holds all this sway over, over us. And it certainly does me. Mm -hmm. I think about it and have thought about it for years. How would I survive in prison? What would I do? Who would I be in prison? And, um, why, why I had a zoom call with a guy not very long ago who was a supporter of the omnibus, uh, podcast. And you know, at, at, on our Patreon, if you give enough money at a certain level, like will Ken and I'll get on a zoom call with you. And this, uh, this omnibus fan comes on and, and, um, the best part of the best part about it was he was wearing one of those t-shirts that looks like a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't those seen are up there with the, with the skeleton t-shirt, but I think they're a little classier, you know? Yeah. They're very classy. I hadn't seen one in years. You know, that was like, that was some, um, you know, father Guido Sarducci era yes. level of like, like rubber chicken level. Mm-hmm of class. And, and so I was like, yes, this guy is right out of my wheelhouse. And he was, <laughs> you know, sort of not what you would expect to, if you thought like who, who's an omnibus listener, you know, he was not in the, in the sciences. Uh, and at one point he dropped, uh, just that, well, you know, he just got out of prison and mm. he's been working as a truck driver. And I was like, wait a minute, hold the phone. You just got out of prison. He was like, yeah, you know, and he was kind of a little bit reticent about it, but he was a young guy. And so I was like, well, what, how long were you in prison? What did you do? And he said, oh, you know, I was in there for three years. And I thought about it and I said it to him in the moment. I was like, three years, like that's the perfect prison sentence. <laughs> and he was like, he kind of, <laughs> like he, he got what I was saying. And he was like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's real. It's three years is real. You, nobody can ever say like, ah, you were just in there for four months. You know, it's like three years. You did real time. Yeah, it's real time. It's only three line. years. You know, you went in when you were 20, you got out when you were 23. It's just like, it's basically like joining the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Except, except prison. You know, like right now. <laughs> it's just like the, the Air Force, except 
that except it's prison. except it, it's prison. In air in the Air Force, you can go off base sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like I'm 52. If I went to prison right now for three years, I'd be 55 when I got out. What's the difference between 52 and 55? There's no difference. Nobody looks at you and they're like, oh, now you're 55. Back then you were 52. Like, you know, I'm into that range of ages now where nobody cares. Mm-hmm. You know, when I turn 60 at some number of years from now, people will be like, oh, wow, you're old now. But like the the years between 50 and 60, nobody nobody can tell the difference. So yeah. if I did three years of prison right now, it would make perfect sense. The I almost only, feel like this is the best time for you to do prison right now. Yeah, it would be a good time. The only problem would be that my daughter would go from age 10 to age 13. Which but is a, a lot huge of people difference, say, but that's a huge difference. It's, it's a huge difference, but a lot of people say those are the years you don't want to be around. No, that's not true. Yeah, I disagree too. And it would be bad, but she'd come visit me in prison and, you know, and that would give her life story a little bit more depth. Like, yeah, my dad was in prison for some of my, you know, when I was in junior high, he was doing a little, a little time. <laughs> you, that's little the time. gift you want to give her, I guess. I mean, it's one of the many things I feel like I, you know, it's just going to add like it's, it's going to add complexity to the story that she tells Mm -hmm. her freshman year when she's meeting her roommate at the dorm and roommates like my dad's in sales and you know, he's like a jet ski. He runs the jet ski dealership in in, you know, in Lake of the Ozarks where we live. And then my daughter's like, well, my dad is a podcaster, but he did a little time. Uh, you know, the other, the other girls will like get quiet. They'll, they'll, they'll give her a little bit extra respect. You know, it's just, you, I don't know how you go into a, it's kind of like your friend trying to get out of the, out of the, the Navy. Yeah. How do you get three years of prison time? Can you look that up on that bell bond site? Like <laughs> what's the best way to get like three years of minimum security prison? All right. Let's see. Although, oh, minimum security. That's the thing. That seems kind of a cop out. It should, it actually should be, I mean, I don't want to go to Sing Sing, but like (laughs) you should have to go, you should have to go to real prison and not some tennis club prison. Okay. So how do you get, how do you get three years in real prison? Here's an article that I found called crimes with mandatory minimum prison sentences updated and revised. Uh, But I'm looking for, these all have a lot of years with them. 25 years, 20 years. Let's see. Okay. It's counting down. Hold on. We're okay. Okay, so let me give you an idea of what would get you like a one-year prison. Okay. Here's a one-year prison sentence. <laughs> well, well, operating. We'll, we'll listen to some of these and we'll <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll see which one fits me best. And these are mandatory, by the way. Mandatory year. Okay. Operating a boat while certificate or right to operate is suspended or revoked for reckless boating, first or second degree, while under the influence. Okay, so that that's out because I because I can't be under the influence. Okay, so but that gets seems, rid of hold that on. That seems pretty easy. You've got to you got to you've got to get your license suspended for recklessness and then keep boating while drunk. Okay, so that's here I'll skip all the DUI ones because there's a bunch. Okay. Um, operating a motor vehicle without a license or with a suspended or revoked license is is one year. Well, I've done that a lot. Um, I've been pulled over by the cops operating a vehicle with a suspended license, <laughs> and they, and I've always said like, oh yeah, I was about to get that taken care of. And they're like, I'll let you off this time. Um, assault of elderly, year. blind, disabled, or pregnant person. No, one year. I think, I think that's a, that's a bad fit for me. A five year would be criminal possession of a pistol or revolver. 
criminal, criminal use possession. of a firearm or electronic defense weapon. So criminal possession means that what that you're not allowed to have a weapon because you're already a convicted felon. That's what that I'm seems, thinking too. Mm-hmm. See, but that's a recursive. I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't be a felon until I'm a felon. Burglary in the third degree with a firearm. You could do that. Oh, but that's five years. That's longer than what you wanted. Problem with gun crimes is, for me at least, uh, you never bring a knife to a gunfight. But also, you don't bring a gun to any kind of fight because at least you might wind up using it. That's why. Yeah, growing up in Alaska, the thing that I learned was a lot more people have guns than you think. And so if you go into a situation and you're like, I've got a gun, you're always risking that the, whatever the grandmother or the, whatever hee-haw you thought you were going to come do some crime on is going to be like, I also have a gun. Mm. Did I ever tell you the story we pulled into, we were driving on the road, some, some, you know, I had a lot of reckless friends and this guy was driving just down the road in Anchorage and he got into something where he and the guy next to him in the car were racing from stoplight to stoplight, but it wasn't friendly. You know, it was one of these, like they both had trucks and they were gear jamming. Oh yeah. Yep. And then it was kind of like that. They were, they were glaring at each other. And I think we both pulled into, uh, the parking lot of Chilkoot Charlie. So it turned out that this turned out that basically chill. Say that the guy, the the guy that I was driving with and the other guy, it turned out they were basically identical twins because they were both dickheads driving trucks and, and, uh, they both were going to Chilkoot Charlie's Chilkoot Chilkoot Charlie's Chilkoot Charlie. Spell that for me. Is a legendary character in Alaska. Um, and it is a bar, uh, oh, coots, coots.com coots is Anchorage's coots. premier venue to get a great drink in a safe and unique environment with the best mix of nightly entertainment drink different. Yes. All of those things that that website says are lies. It's not, <laughs> a, it's not any of those things. Um, it definitely, when I was a kid, it was, it's always been a unique environment, but it was not at all a safe environment. And premier venue, I mean, that might be true now. They've, they've turned it into a real tourist attraction. But mm-hmm. Coots was always, uh, I mean, it was the big bar in Anchorage. The, it was the, it was the big bar. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I think people that grow up in cities don't have the experience of there being like, Anchorage has a thousand bars, but like the bar and it, and in a way, like the bar for for tourists, looky loos, snorks, but there, but I mean, that's also Alaska, so there there are plenty of. Um, I guess it was very different in the seventies. In the seventies, it was a bar that had locals, you know, that had people just sitting at the bar drinking all day. Nowadays, it definitely feels like you walk in and you're in a you're in a zoo. But but at the time of the telling of this story. It was in that middle period where there were still some locals sitting at the bar, but it was also full of, uh, like bachelorette parties and (laughs) high school kids with fake IDs and, you know, and the, the band on stage was like playing ska, uh, you know, it was reggae. It was very confusing time, the late eighties. Anyway, we pull into this parking lot and my, and, and, and there's that hostility that already exists between the guy that I'm driving with and the other guy. Yeah. 
but then we pull into Coots and he pulls in. Now it seems like it's on. Well, it turned out, no, he was just also going to Coots because he's also a dingaling. But when he pulled in next to us, it was like, oh, you want some? Kind of that was the vibe. And my my buddy um like reaches down under the seat of his truck and pulls out a pistol mm. and like waves it basically like, and, and all of us, I mean, my friend and I were probably 19 and the guy in the other car was the ripe old age of 24, 27. Um, so a lot of maturity on display, but my friend pulls it. And the thing is like, he had a gun under the seat. Like, I didn't know that Yeah, there was, I knew there was a gun in the, in the glove box, but, uh, but it was jammed and it was so badly jammed that we couldn't get it unjammed. But the gun under the seat, I had no idea. I, it was just like, it all of a sudden appeared and I was like, Whoa. And then we look over and he, the, the guy pulls out a gun from under his seat and waves it. Now they're not pointing them at each other. But my friend was pulling out the gun to say, you want some? Mm. And then the other guy pulled out his gun and was like, I have some already. Oh my. And there was this like pregnant moment where I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, well, good then. And both guys put their guns back under the seat of their trucks. Mm -hmm. We all got out of the trucks. Uh, there wasn't some like, ha ha ha, we're all friends now. It was just sort of like, all right then. Okay then. And then everybody went like the bar. A, almost like a, a mutual respect kind of a thing. Ah, I mean, I didn't respect anybody <clears throat> involved, but yeah, it was just like a, a mutual, a mutual fear and avoidance. <laughs> I, what it taught me was you think that if you think that pulling a gun out is the uh, argument ender mm. in most cases it probably is but it's those times when it isn't that uh that makes it like a dumb thing to do at any time you know it's like the the cops don't well at least they're not supposed to pull out their gun unless they're prepared to to use it to use it right, right? you mm -hmm. don't just pull your gun out to say like i said get back in the car you know, uh, you shouldn't because then you're going to shoot people apparently is what happens. But all that gun training stuff is just like, don't ever put, pull your gun out unless you actually really are already on the path to using it. Because if you pull it out, you know, you might have, so anyway, all the gun crime crimes that might give me three to five, mm. um, I don't, I, it's just too much of a risk. No, I don't want to pack a gun into some situation because you never know. You never know. So what else have we got? Uh, there's not, you know, it's hard to find this stuff because it's all it pulls up are, um, are like news articles about people who were. So here, here's an example from May 6 of 2019, the federal camp in New York where Michael Cohen is serving a three year sentence. So it's talking all about that, but, um, you know, Michael Cohen was, uh, president Trump's former lawyer. Uh, and he had crimes including campaign finance violations. So you could do something like that. Right. I don't want to be Trump's former lawyer. I mean, no, but I, you could do campaign finance violations. You don't have to do anything with Trump. All that, all those sort of the money crimes, like I think embezzlement. You'd be really good at the money crimes. 
I would, but it would it would require that I <clears throat> I don't know. It doesn't seem like a thing where it's like I want to do three years in prison. I'm going to waltz down and get in trouble. It's something where it's like, oh, now I'm a member of the Republican Party. Oh, now I've got to work my way up in the organization until people trust me with money. Then I've got to be clever enough to be moving money around or be or or pick a really corrupt person. Okay, here's that something. You can just tell us corrupt. Here's something that could work. Here's something that could work. Okay. Um, burglary. Because depending on what you steal in the circumstances, you could get anywhere from, uh, it says here, the possible sentences for a first degree burglary conviction range from one to 25 years. Mm. Second degree burglary is subject to a one in 15 year sentence and judges can set any third degree burglary sentence up to seven years. So third degree burglary, I think is something you should seriously consider and i'm going to tell you what what the difference is with the burglaries third degree yeah. burglary this is an article on brinks home security okay <clears throat> uh, burglary in the third degree is a less severe offense than second degree and first degree burglary charges in many cases a first-time offender may be subject to a third degree burglary charge if he or she knowingly entered a building with the intent yeah. to commit the crime whether or not another crime occurred during the break-in does not matter for instance if a person crawled through a basement window but fled after hearing a family dog, he or she can still be charged with a burglary offense. Oh. And you know that okay. your maximum offense is probably going to be seven years. With parole, you'd probably only do three and a half or four. So I think this is your ticket. And if you don't get yes. enough, then just get in some fights in prison and they'll extend your sentence until it hits three years. So what I'm worried about in this case, though, is that you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. Mm -hmm. I've got uh, no no real priors. No. Uh, you know, I've got I've got a little a little little archipelago of of uh, crimes and misdemeanors from my uh, late teens, early twenties. But I haven't done anything bad recently. And uh, I've got this kid. I'm a I'm a respectable member of the community. I've got um, you know. Uh, I've got a mitigating factor, which is oh, that recently be I was lenient on you is what you're saying. That's the problem. I'm saying that they're going to give me off on a suspended sentence or the judge is going to say, well, I see that, you know, you've been, uh, <clears throat> you know, you've recently had some kerfuffle on the internet and it's clouded your judgment. And I, I see that you're kind of going through a personal crisis and I'm going to give you a suspended sentence. And in that moment, I probably sitting in the court will be, reevaluating my decision to want to do three years in prison and yeah. I'm going to take the suspended sentence, right? I'm going to be like, whoo, dodged a bullet here. Right. So it's got to be a thing where my middle-aged white dadness yeah. is not enough of a swaying factor where the judge, because I'm the classic example of somebody that the judge will be given life sentences to everybody in front and behind and then he'll say, but you, sir, seem like a fine Christian gentleman and, you know, and pass me on to some cushy work farm for uh, no, where I'm out picking trash you, up on the ground. That's no, not what I, you want. No, I want like three years where I get in there and, and all the other hardened criminals realize that, you know, that I'm a jailhouse lawyer <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I let my hair get all be long and white and then like Nicholas Cage comes into the jail. Oh, and it's a celebrity to, jail. He has to deal with me because I'm the guy that knows like how to make, 
how to make prune wine. Uh-huh. Although, I, you know, prune wine isn't going to be my thing. I'm not a hacker. You're like a prison cook. Oh, I don't want to be the cook. What would your job really... be in prison? Because most of the time you wind up with a job. What would yours, what would you want to do as the job in there? The cushy job, I think, is like folding towels, right? Or something like that. Laundry? Or uh, No, I would love to be the prison librarian if there was, if you could be librarian. I'd be, the, I'd be that. I'm just thinking of it as a meditative time, a time when I would finally do all those things where I read the Bible all the way through. I was talking to, to again, mentioning Ken Jennings, talking to him just yesterday, and I said, have you read the Bible all the way? And he was like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm a religious person. I've read the Bible all the way. And I was like, God, that seems like a big undertaking. You know, Seriously. it's over a thousand paper or a thousand pages. He's like, well, I mean, the way you do it is you read a little bit every day. You Right before bed, I guess, you read a couple of pages. Right. Like you're not sitting down to read the Bible cover to cover in, in one afternoon. And I said, oh, but it's got, isn't it very repetitive? And he was like, every once in a while you get one of those pages where somebody begat somebody begat somebody, but then then uh, the story picks back up and there's always somebody doing something weird. It seems to me like you have to go into it with an already an interest in the Bible to get through it. Maybe. Like you don't I mean, just, you don't a, just like look around in your shelves and what should I read today? And you grab the Bible and you're like, I can't put this thing down. Like I'm, I'm here till it's done. I don't think I that have a literary either. interest in it. I mean, it's, you know, all the stories or a lot of them. Have I told you that I'm in a Moby Dick book club? <laughs> no. <laughs> so my friend, Christopher Frizzell, who is the, uh, he edits the local alternative paper, the stranger. And he's been an editor for many years and, um, you know, he's a, uh, he's a delightful person, although an alternative newspaper journalist, and so an awful person, yeah, bastard. Seriously, but but um, within the context of being uh, awful, he's wonderful, smart, and funny, and you know the right combination of of very gentle and very dangerous. He invented a thing, not invented, but he started a, a thing here in Seattle called the silent reading party mm. where, um, and then he started this several years ago where he just secured the lobby of the Sorrento hotel, which is this, uh, this boutique hotel here mm-hmm. owned by, owned by a woman who is, um, <clears throat> a sort of, you know, a little, my age or a little bit older, her husband bought it. I think as a, he's a real estate asshole and he bought it for her as a kind of like, it's better than a diamond necklace type of thing. Like, oh. how would you like a, like a 150 year old boutique hotel? And she's like, that sounds fun. Yeah. And so she's, she runs it as her kind of like fun temple. Um, it's a really nice hotel, the Sorrento. And in fact, my book of tweets, electric aphorisms that came out in 2000 whenever that was 2010 was originally published because she started a small press that was printing books just to put in each room in her hotel. So that when you checked into her hotel, there was like a small stack of like four books on the, on the bedside table Mm -hmm. that you could only get here in her hotel. They were all perfect bound books written by local people um, and so, you know, the electric aphorisms was published initially to put in every room of the Sorrento hotel. And, and so, you know, it's that kind of 
thing in Seattle, right? It's a cultural place that it's a small, it's, it's a, it represents a universe there. There most people in Seattle have never heard of it, but if, but you could be like, I did an interview in there one time with the, the lead singer of the murder city devils where he interviewed me. I was in a bathtub, like a naked in a bathtub. Uh-huh. He was sitting on the toilet interviewing me. There were microphones hanging from the ceiling. And then there were like 80 people <clears throat> sitting in folding chairs in an adjoining room, listening to the interview on speakers, right? It seemed like a good thing. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But the the point being that it's nice to have, <clears throat> it's nice to like know rich people who are also like cult cultural right. because they give you these play spaces, and you can kind of just like, oh, I guess we have a hotel for the night. Like we and Christopher Frizzell, the 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 lobby is this beautiful space. He started doing this weekly thing where you would gather in the lobby of the Sorrento and read quietly. Mm. That was the whole, that was the whole thing. Everyone would come and you would just read quietly. And it was super fun, super fun, fun, funny. But once you get there, you're like, oh, I do have a book that I've been meaning to read. And now here I am. And it's an entire room full of people reading, but not a library. Like, the, uh, the, the bar is serving drinks. People are coming and going from the hotel. It's just, there's a fire in the fireplace. And then after enough people came and it was enough of a success, Christopher got, a like he started having someone with a cello kind of sit in the corner oh and gosh. just play like this lovely cello music, a little violin and, uh, someone, there's a grand piano there. So, you know, he would have musicians come and just kind of play this sort of, tinkling lobby silent reading party music and now it's online now you can have a silent reading party in the lobby of the Serena hotel via zoom call anyway frizzell is a nut and great and he wrote me in the fall and he was like we're gonna read moby dick and i said i tried to read or i did read moby dick when i was young because a teacher assigned me Moby Dick basically because she was tired of me being precocious. And she was like, you know what? If you're so smart, why don't you read Moby Dick? And then you can do a book report and that will keep you quiet while I try to teach the rest of these students. <laughs> right. And I was, and at the time I was like, well, you know, I guess I am that smart. I will read this Moby Dick. And it, it was completely impenetrable, like impenetrable. And so, but I was going to prove to her that I could read it and to prove to everyone. And I realized in doing it that none of the adults in my life had ever read Moby Dick. She had not. My parents had not. Mm -hmm. I never found a person who had read Moby Dick. It's just everybody knew about Moby Dick. There was a whale and Ahab and Ishmael. And the ones that, that were a little bit better could get as far as Queequeg, but Beyond that, oh, and the Pequod, but beyond those literary references and the fact that the whale was a, was symbolic, uh, nobody's read the book. And so Frizzell is like, we're going to, I'm having a book club. We're going to read Moby Dick. And I was like, I don't know about this. And you know, it's a thing where he was, it's expensive to join the book club. Mm -hmm. It costs money. And that's partly a way of ensuring that the only people that are there are people that want to be. Right. 
but, but he was like, I'll give you a scholarship. You know, it would just be fun. It's just going to be fun to be there. And right up until the last minute, I was like, oh man, that's a big commitment. Like every week for at the time, you know, this was November or October. And he was like, it's going to go through March. We're going to meet every, every week until March. But at the very last minute, I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And started to read Moby Dick with this group. And there's probably 30 people, maybe more, 40 people in the group. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the youngest person is probably 34. The oldest person is 80. And there's some luminaries in there, you know, some people that you would know. But also, as the weeks went on, it was revealed that there were these that there were truly scholarly people in there. Okay. Um, lit literary people and, and, um, people that just had the, that kind of education that I always wanted, which was like, well, when I was getting my PhD at the American university in Beirut, I decided that I was going to spend four years on an archeological dig in Sudan. And that was what led me to Cape town where I, Worked for the government for a while. And you're just like, oh, okay, great. That's why, why didn't I live your life? That you know, there are like people in the group who are in their 70s that still smoke cigarettes. It's that kind of crowd. In a way, like a crowd that I love having access to, just listening to them talk. Well, so we start reading Moby Dick, and Moby Dick is a very difficult book. And in 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 working through it, you realize, oh. The whole story of how Moby Dick was lost, uh, nobody had bought it in its time. Melville, more or less, died not at all a celebrated author, um, not having made any money from his books. And it was only in the early 20th century, in the 1920s, where the literary culture in the United States had changed enough that you know modernism had come into books, and there were... And, you know, and the, the Academy was sort of casting back in the American story, like let's, let's put together a list, you know, they were building a cannon. Let's put together a list of all the great American books right. to separate us from, you know, from Dickens or whatnot. And, and we're, these are the American books. And Moby Dick was discovered kind of in this churning process. And it was and in the style of the time, in the sort of Faulknerian modernist writing that was popular then, it was, I think they realized, oh, this book written in 1850 uh, era was way ahead of the curve in writing this, in writing in this style. Like it was a, it was a, it was a book 70 years before its time. Well, those, that, I mean, it's, it is extremely dense this book but i'm reading it with this group and i've never had this i've never done this mm -hmm. where you know you always think of a book group as like oh you get together and you and you chat and you and you read the joy luck club or whatever but this is a group where i couldn't have read moby dick and understood it as well if i weren't in this in this collection <clears throat> of minds because the book is so dense with biblical allusions and 
it, not just your usual, like the Bible, Shakespeare and the Greeks, but Melville is talking about all his sort of contemporary thinkers. He's incredibly well read. He's got a huge crush on Nathaniel Hawthorne and he's trying to impress him with his writing. Mm -hmm. And he's also in a state. I mean, he's just in an ecstatic state. And so this book is like, um, it's like wandering through the jungle, you know, every minute. And it's also written in the, the highfalutin language of the mid 19th century. So, and he makes up words like it's so, uh, it, it, it would have been insurmountable, I think, to keep my interest, right? Because you sit down, it's like you're saying with the Bible. You sit down and you start to read it and you're like, I don't get it. I don't get why I'm reading this book, frankly. Right, right. Like, I don't see where this, because it starts off and it's like, it's a merry adventure. <laughs> and then it then it goes into these chapters, which is, it's like, okay, and now there's a chapter where I'm going to identify every kind of whale and I'm going to give my personal opinion about every kind of whale and and I'm going to reveal then that, you know, Ishmael is a nut, but, um, but also this is a serious chapter of several pages where we're going to talk about, um, the differences between whales. And then, it, then, then it will go off into a chapter where I, it's completely unclear what the chapter is about at all. There's no, there's nothing happening. It's just like a word salad almost. But I've found that this sort of you know, every week we only have a manageable number of pages to read. We read them and then this giant group of people gets together. Christopher Frizzell sort of lectures for an hour about, about what we've been reading. And he's a very kind of fluid lecturer, just sort of all over the map. He's not, he's not going like footnote to footnote. Right. And then it opens up and all these people are like, well, you know what? Th that's interesting. The, the story of Jonah and the whale you know, actually is about this particular town in Syria or it's possible that it's, you know, it's, it's possible that that right there is a reference to Carthage. And then someone else, you know, throws in with some other like bafflingly expansive knowledge about things, about stuff. And I come out the other side and I'm like, I just want to read more of this book. Like this book is fantastic. It's hilarious. It's, um, it, I feel like reading Moby Dick this way has made me smarter uh -huh. and it's made me understand what I used to love about reading novels. I know American history better as a result of it. And so I'm, I've never been in a book club before and now I'm all about book clubs. Uh, I just want to be in book clubs all the time. And I feel like, because right before I started reading Moby Dick, I was like, you know what? I've never read El Cid. And, um, or no, 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 I'm sorry. Um, I've never read Don Quixote. And I see Don Quixote referenced all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's like Moby Dick. You're, you're reading something, you're reading something else. And Don Quixote makes an appearance. And I know the story of Don Quixote the same way I know the story of Moby Dick, but I'd never read it. And the references to, to Don Quixote are always the same. They're like, it's the great, you know, it's the greatest novel. It's, it's so readable. It's so, it's, it really holds up. 
It's like, it really holds up. Really? You're telling me that I'm going to dive into Don Quixote and I'm just going to gobble up the pages. But I was like, I'm tired of this quarantine. I'm going to read Don Quixote. And I got it and I started to read it and I really did enjoy it. But then I joined the Moby Dick book club and I, and I laughed at myself at one point. It's like, here you are, Mr. 52 years old. You're trying to read Don Quixote and Moby Dick at the same time. And you're not even bragging about it, although I am now. But <laughs> there was a there were several weeks there where I was like, this, you know, the only reason to do this is to brag about it. Right. But somehow I'm actually now you, I'm you actually, found that you've got you got sucked in. Well, yeah, I'm actually reading the books. I'm right. not even I'm not even interested in bragging about it. <laughs> I had to put Don Quixote aside because Moby Dick was because they're both dense, you know, and Moby Dick is so much denser. Right. Um, that, and, and honestly, halfway through this winter, I started reading a, a, like, um, Stephen Ambrose's book about Lewis and Clark because I just needed, I needed something that was not, that did not have like 14 literary allusions per page. And this uh, Ambrose Lewis and Clark book, Ambrose is like so enamored with Meriwether Lewis just loves him. Like you can just tell that he's like. He's got a lifelong boner for Meriwether Lewis. Right. And I personally don't like Meriwether Lewis. Like, I don't, I don't think he or Clark would have been very good hangs. But Stephen Ambrose <laughs> thinks that they're amazing guys to spend time with. Right. And reading, reading about their adventure, I'm like, ooh, ow, oh, no. Uh, you know, Lewis and Clark, especially living in Seattle – in the Northwest, Lewis and Clark are just like, they stand a astride the Columbia and um, they're a big deal up here as they are all the way across Western America. But I just kind of didn't know how wrongheaded the Lewis and Clark expedition was in so much of what they did. They were just, they were just dinglings about the way they approached the tribes they encountered in the West in general. And, um, I keep thinking like, why are you doing it that way? Why, why wouldn't you just do it this other way? But you know, I'm not in charge of the Lewis and Clark expedition. No, you were not there. I am in charge of reading Moby Dick and it's making me realize, actually, I'm not in charge of that either. Christopher Frizzell is, but I am in charge of me reading Moby Dick. Right. And it's making me realize in light of the, of where this conversation started, that the only way to read the Bible would be in a book club. I thought you were going to say in prison. Well, the the challenge of reading the Bible in prison, I think, would be that there are a lot of prison Bible people. Yeah. Well, that would be people that you could have. That's a built-in book club. Why is that bad? Because Bible people all have a hot take. And I want to read the Bible not in a situation where people are going, see, see, it says right there. The Lord gave his only begotten son. It's like, I know, I know. I read, I read the words too. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody trying to use the Bible to prove anything to me. I just want to, I, I just want to read it as a, like, I want to read it in a room full of people where one of them is a, you went to, uh, it's like a archeologist from Jerusalem, right? Where, <laughs> where people can say like, oh, well, when he says this, he really means that. Right, and this sure. is, you know. And I want like a, 
I want a rabbi in the group. Like I want, I want a, a varied enough group that it can become a Bible, uh, like the Bible as, um, global artifact and not the Bible as like word of God book. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how you put a group together. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to write Christopher Frizzell and say, look, if you can make Moby Dick this fun, why don't we read the Bible? No, but that would be a, that'd be a book club that would, that would last a year. I was going to say that's, that's a really, if you're, if you were thinking Moby Dick is a commitment, I mean, the Bible is a law, a big, big commitment. How long does it take? And I can tell you, cause my, my kids go to, um, go to a, a Lutheran school and well, they do. Yeah. Uh, we're not Lutheran, but it's a great school. And so they, um, they, I think the way that it works is you starting, starting in middle school in the first day of middle school, you start reading the Bible and then by oh. the end of the last day of middle school, you have read the whole Bible. And I think they assign, they each, they read like a, I don't know how much they read a day, but they, it's scheduled out so that like every day you have something to read. And then by the end of the, the last day of your last uh, year of middle school, you've read the Bible. So there's that. So the Bible, it says here, yeah, you could you could easily read it in a year. People do. It takes. It says here that now this is a weird thing to say. It says it takes just seventy hours and forty minutes. Is it wait? Is this New Testament or Old Testament? <clears throat> this is entire Bible. What does that mean? Which, which I mean, it's yeah, Old Testament and New Testament. Okay. It takes just 70 hours and 40 minutes to read the Bible through at pulpit rate pulpit and rate. allowed. You could read the Bible aloud in 70 hours and 40 minutes. Okay. It takes only, so, you know, how's, what if you read one hour a day, uh -huh. which again, seems like easy to say, harder to do. Let's say you, uh, let's say you read for a half hour a day. You See, they need, there needs to be a website where you can put in how long you want to spend reading a day, and then you pick yeah. the book from the drop-down list, and then that tells you how long it'll take you to read that book. And it needs to yeah. have every book ever written. Well, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this Patreon I just launched and how to uh, populate it with interesting content. And I'm thinking, well, what if I just posted me reading the Bible for a half hour every day? It would take me six months to read the entire Bible, and then it would be entered in to the canon. Here's, you know, you could buy the DVD set. It's John Roderick reading the Bible aloud. Right. Uh, it's 70 hours of DVDs. Well, you know that that's, you know, do you, you know about the project that I've been working on, right? What's your project? The, the evening read. Didn't what's I tell you about read? this? Okay, so I, um, you know how, how people would always, uh, I mean, I've been podcasting now since 2006. That's and incredible. One of the like recurring emails that I get is, and it usually goes just like this. Hey, Dan, big fan, no offense, but like I listen oh, to your no podcasts offense. and they help me fall asleep. And like, you've got the perfect voice. It just puts me to sleep. I'm like, and that's not like, it's, it's not quite a backhanded com compliment because it's actually just 
a straight up compliment, it, but it's not what the goal is. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. the goal isn't to put people to sleep, but I, I started thinking about it and you know, there's a podcast out there called sleep with me where the guy sort of reads things that are boring and other things like that. And I thought, you know, I actually, when I, when I'm not just talking to you like this, but when I do my reading voice, it works because I can read both of my kids to sleep. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe there's something here, you know? So yeah. I, uh, I, I decided that I would start and I announced this on Twitter a while back and I've been recording the books and getting them ready. And so what, what it is, is it's, it's a podcast where I have gone back to the classics because they're in the public domain. Yeah. And I read these classic books in my most calming voice. And there's, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a, there's a little bit of a background sound that, that fits in with it, that creates an ambiance and, and is a good, you know, background noise for people to fall asleep to. And so I've been reading these books and recording them and I'm going to be dropping this like really soon. And, uh, and there's so many great books that are in the public domain so that means I it, I can read them without, you know, having to pay, I guess, some licensing fee or something. You could just read the books. And Moby Dick is in the Moby public Moby Dick domain. is in there. Um, War of the Worlds, The Great Gatsby. There's so many wonderful books that I've been reading. And uh, and so I'm going to start releasing this as a, as, a, uh, as a podcast that people hopefully will be able to listen to and fall asleep. But the whole, also the other point is it works really well as a nice Audiobook, book on book on tape, as we used to say, in between the uh -huh. cracker barrels, and um, and so yeah, this is like a thing that that I'm doing, and um, I'm ready to come out with it. And I actually think that I register the domain for it. Hold on, let me see here. Yeah, eveningread.show. If you go there, you can see a picture of me getting ready to read, and uh, and that's that. This is a wonderful thing, Dan. I hope it. I hope it works out. I hope people like it. It's uh, it's something I've never done before, ever, and I feel a little almost ostentatious, uh, proclaiming myself the reader of a book for the masses. But we'll see how it goes. You do have a wonderful. Uh, you do have a wonderful uh, tenor to your voice. Oh, thank you. I said so. You know, when I was trying to come up with uh, with Patreon tiers. Yes. I was like, you know, I don't want to have any tears that would obligate me to do any actual sort of thing, right? I don't want to have like, oh, it's <laughs> you don't tier. actually have like, to do anything to earn the money. <laughs> the, the, well, no, I mean, I feel like I, I, what I do to earn the money is what I do, and it this is a thing, you know, it's a, it's one of these patrons that's like, hey, do you like what I do across the whole board? You know what? At, the, at that moment in our music world where Napster came in and people were like, well, music should be free. Mm -hmm. And all of us who had grown up in the like, well, actually we sell our music era. We're told kind of by the world, like, well, if you want to make music or if you want to make money from your music, just sell t-shirts. Mm, oh yes. This. And it was like, what are you talking about? We like, it's, we're selling the music and they're like, no, no, no. Music should be free. So you, you sell t-shirts. That's your business now. And the problem with selling t-shirts is that we're, you know, we were a generation of musicians. We're not t-shirt merchants. We're not running a, uh, like a clothing store, but that became the world that people told us we couldn't sell our records anymore because music should be free. So what you were supposed to do was make a living selling concert tickets and then merch. And, 
And that made it super hard, particularly, I remember one time, and this sounds like, this sounds apocryphal, but I was sitting at the merch table and a guy walks over, a well-dressed guy, Mm -hmm. and he looks at the merch table and he's like, well, I've got all your records online. You know, I've got, you know, I downloaded them all. And this was before we had put our music online. So by saying he downloaded it all, he meant from wherever. I downloaded all your music and I love it. Uh, and I don't really need a t-shirt, but anyway, I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan. Love your stuff. And I was like, thanks. And he walked past the merch table out the door. And this was at the old crocodile where I could see there were, I was sitting at the merch table, but I could look outside through the glass to see the street climbed into like a BMW 740i. Um, and like, didn't peel out. That would have really, that would have been the icing on the cake, but you know, pulled into traffic and off he went. And I was like, right, I'm supposed to sell t-shirts and here I am selling t-shirts. This guy, you know, is rich, but he's got all my records. You know, it was just one of those, like we spent about a decade with a bad taste in our mouth. Uh, and then just eventually realized like, oh, well, there's no, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And actually what's wonderful about this new generation is that they, they kind of lived up to, somehow they lived up to the promise, which was they understood this issue and invented things like Bandcamp and Patreon. It's a, it's, it's this, this universe of like, no, we recognize that, that the stuff that you made has value, but we appreciate you as a creator and we're going to give you money voluntarily, right? We, we took the stuff for free, but we're voluntarily supporting you. It's a whole new concept of one that my generation didn't have. My generation was very mercantile, right? Like I give you $10, you give me the CD. I give you $10, you give me a t-shirt. And this world where people are like, well, I took all your stuff. I listened to 10,000 hours of your podcast for free and I have all your music on Spotify, but I'm willing to give you $10 a month just to show my appreciation. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a real evangelist of it now. Uh, I think the Patreon's the greatest thing that ever happened, but I didn't want to do the thing that they recommend, which is like at the $5 tier, you get a thing at the ten dollar tier. You get a thing that the five dollar people don't get. Why? At I mean, why didn't you tier, want to do that? That seems to be the recommended way. It is the recommended way, but I feel like it's. I feel like it's kind of junky. I think that people are the, the the people that want to give to a John Roderick Patreon are people that are just that just want to find a way to say, I've been listening to you for a long time. I like you. I like what you do. I want you to keep doing it, and I want to acknowledge the thousands of hours of stuff that you've given me. And I know that money is, even though money is fake, money is real. And so $5 a month is, or $10 a month. This is what I want to do just to, uh, just to balance the books and the game, because I heard this a lot with when you and I, when you put up our Patreon Mm -hmm. in the first place, Mm -hmm. which was my first connection to the, to the, uh, to the idea. And then Omnibus put up a Patreon and I heard just, I got a lot of emails and messages from people that are like, I mean, there are people that contribute to the roadwork Patreon that don't even listen to the after show, which we think of as the ultimate perk. 
and it is, it's an entire other podcast, but there are a lot of people that are like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not looking for perks. I just wanted a way to give you a, a token of my appreciation. And I heard that enough and I watched, you know, I learned a big lesson when Ted Leo, uh, crowdfunded his last record because it was a, you know, it was a big splash. It got into the, it got into the trades. Like Ted Leo made $150,000 on Kickstarter. It was a major success from, from our terms, uh, indie rock terms, but I'm, you know, close to Ted and I was talking to him a lot during that process. And he reported the, basically the Amanda Palmer story, which was Amanda Palmer funded something with a Kickstarter one time. And she made such extravagant promises. You know, if you give $50, you'll get the record, uh, a set of vinyl gloves that I wore to clean my kitchen. I took apart a typewriter for you and made it into jewelry. Uh, I, uh, like I'm sending you a gallon of fresh squeezed orange juice every week for a year. Like she put all these tears together and then even though she made a million dollars, she spent the next two years fulfilling all of these promises. I heard that from Vanderslice, but, but watching Ted Leo do it and realizing at the end, he was like, after I got done paying all the expenses of making the album, after I got done paying all the expenses of actually producing the, the different merch and sending it out and then factoring in the time it took me to build little toothpick Eiffel towers for everybody at the, at the Eiffel tower level. Mm -hmm. He was like, I made about $20,000. Wow. For a, you know, for a year mm -hmm. of work. That's well, not and nothing like, though. It's yeah, but it's it not. It wasn't like he was eight hours a day though, was he? But what it was, was he gave himself, it's, it's again, it's this t-shirt thing. It, he gave himself a job, not as a musician, but as a merch fulfillment warehouse, mm -hmm. right? He gave himself a job as a, as someone, uh, doing like, uh, shipping and receiving. And that's not what we want Ted Leo to be spending his time on, right? You don't it just, it's just somebody globally when you're like, what should we put? I'm God today. What should I put Ted Leo to work doing? Should I put a guitar in his hands and see what he comes up with? Or should I have him in his basement licking envelopes, you know? Um, but $20,000 for a year's worth of work and for, for a record. And this is the crazy thing. Like the records that I put out in the 2000s, if you go back now and just count every penny that those records generated, um, you don't make that much money in music, you know, even the bands that are like a big deal. Um, you don't end up a record that sells really well. I'm not talking about a, somebody that is like selling a million records, but even bands, you know, Harvey danger had a gold record. They didn't make that much money mm -hmm. because it all gets gobbled up. It gets yeah. gobbled up by this. It gets gobbled up by that. So, I didn't want to do tears in that way because I just felt like, you know, everybody that listens to this show knows that I struggle with project management and, and promise fulfillment mm -hmm. 
my my whole life is defined by all the promises I've made that I never, you know, I if I've fulfilled my promises, I would have had a long winner's record that came out in 2009, 2011, 2014. So, but, but, so all of my tears were comical because I recognize like anybody that's coming to this Patreon is doing it because they want to, um, support me, not because they want something. They're not doing this for something. Right. They're doing it to support me. They don't want to pin. They don't want to, you know, if I sent them a t-shirt, they'd be like, oh, great. That's nice. You know, and some of them would be like, I like it. And others would be like, I don't wear t-shirts, but the, it isn't the point of going on my Patreon. Right. right. There are plenty of places, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is that people wanted to be, you know, supportive. And it's it's crazy. Fifteen hundred people on there. Um, that just came to basically and and I've gotten a lot of a lot of messages from within it. Mm-hmm. People saying, I don't want anything. Don't you're posting too much. You know, I was on there that first week so excited. I was like, Hey everybody. And and people actually wrote me and they were like, Don't, you know, don't overdo it. Don't tax yourself. Relax. If you have something interesting, put it on there. But otherwise, you don't have to. You don't have to interact with us. That's not why we're here. But one of the tears I I said because I was excited. I said, if we reach this amount of contributions, I will read the chapter of Moby Dick where he describes every kind of whale, <laughs> and I'll read it in the voice of Darth Vader. Oh my God! And you got it right. And I, I arrived at that tier and then I looked at the chapter and started to try and read it aloud in the voice of Darth Vader. And it would have, it would have wrecked me, you know, like it would, it would have destroyed my voice. It would have destroyed my mind. And so I felt like, well, that was a joke tier. I mean, one of the tiers was like, if I get, if I reach this level, everyone gets a piano. And I actually had someone write me and, and say like, you should probably take that down because you're you're not going to want to give everybody a piano. And I felt like there's 1500 people on here. They surely know they're not all getting a piano, but I actually did go back in just because, you know, the internet and put in parentheses, not everyone actually gets a piano, but somebody wrote me the other day and they were like, Hey, I, uh, I've been looking for that, uh, that chapter, the Moby Dick reading the Moby Dick chapter. And I wrote, was like, I don't, I, I, I honestly, I'm not going to read that, which is a long chapter. I'm not going to read that chapter about the whales in the voice of Darth Vader. That was a joke. And they wrote back and said, well, not in the voice of Darth Vader, but I really think that would be a good, I really think that would be a cool thing. You just reading that, you, you just reading aloud. And in hearing you talk about this new project, like Dan Benjamin just reads, reads books aloud to you do to chapter, help you. Huh? Well, I, so before, before today, last night I did lay in bed and try to read the chapter on cetology aloud to myself. Mm-hmm. And it's no small undertaking to read a, to read it aloud. Right. Um, I don't have your, your wonderful radio voice. You know, I have the voice of someone who's been, uh, who's been shouting into the wind. But they, people love your voice. Life. Well, yeah, but it's like, you know, I spend, I, I haven't, I don't think I've ever heard you clear your throat and maybe it's because you have a mute button. No, I don't, I don't do that. But you know me, I'm always like, <clears throat> I mean, you know, there's to keep my voice operating. I need a, 
I need a team of mechanics and a bunch of snap-on tools. 